Well, good morning. As we gather on this Thursday in the 32nd week, we have these two beautiful readings in the life of a saint to reflect on today, each of them worthy of their own independent study. If we look at first at Paul's letter to Philemon, what's fascinating is there are nine characters in this short letter. It's actually a very brief letter in the New Testament of our faith in the corpus of Paul. This is a letter written to his friend Philemon. Paul is in prison at this time, many suspect in Rome. He's writing this letter assumed in the year between 61 and 63 AD. He would go to his death in 68 AD. So this is, this is four or five years, six years before his death. And he's writing to his friend because a slave, Onesimus, has come to him and has been helping Paul out in his prison. And it was a custom at the time that family and friends would provide for those in prison. That There was no formal prison system, per se. If you were locked in prison, it was up to you to figure out how to get fed. There were not three hots and a cot like we have today in our prison system. It was pretty much on your own. I hope you make it. And so in this letter, we have Philemon, the character to whom it's addressed. But Paul also writes to Aphia and Archippus, who are, as Paul writes, the church in your house. So Philemon is a Christian, and in his home are these two other individuals, Athia and Archippus. In his close to the letter, in his final, final uh, greeting, he names Epaphras, Mark, Aristarchus, Damas, and Luke. So in total, there are nine characters, eight of whom are specifically named besides Paul in this letter. And it gives us some evidence of the early church. Who, who was this early church and why? Uh, again, an answer to that question that gets asked both the young school-age children and us as adults, how did Christianity spread so fast? It's because in the early church, in reading these various testimonies and letters, particularly Luke's testimony in Acts, you have all of these named individuals that you can talk to about the faith. You can speak to them about it because they're known. They're known to those in the Eastern Mediterranean region. But the point of the letter is that Onesimus has come to help Paul in his imprisonment. He's been very supportive of Paul and helpful. And so Paul writes a letter, this letter, to Philemon, gives it to Onesimus to bring it back to Philemon. And what he's, what he's encouraging Philemon to do is to grant Onesimus his freedom because slavery was an institution of the time in first century. It would actually go on for several centuries. But, but slavery was not abnormal in that time. Oftentimes people would indenture themselves into slavery to be provided for. A master would then take control of that individual and employ them in various tasks around their property and the, the, the slave would be cared for. There would be housing and basic provision, but they were not free to come and go as they chose. So that may be the institution in which Onesimus finds himself. Paul sends him back a letter, sends Onesimus carrying a letter, and he says to him, you know, brother, my brother in Christ, here's what I'm encouraging you to do because Onesimus is now a brother of ours in equality in Christ. He's a beloved brother, especially to, to me, writes Paul but even more so to you as a man and in the Lord. So Paul encourages him, so if you regard me as a partner, then welcome him as you would me. And then he says this very boldly, and if he has done you any injustice or owes you anything, charge it to me. This is in my hand. I'm telling you, give me that bill of sale. Give me that expense account if, the, if Onesimus has cost you anything. I, Paul, write this in my own hand. I will pay it. 
uh, with trust in your compliance, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. He's encouraging him in the faith to just live fully in the faith. And then, as I mentioned, he offers his final greeting, greeting naming these other uh, five individuals who are fellow workers in the vineyard. In our letter from Luke, letter from Luke, in our gospel reading from Luke, we have a very different theme. If we can look at Paul's letter to Philemon and say it's a theme of freedom in Christ and fellowship in Christ, uh, in our gospel hearing from Luke, we're hearing our Lord answer the question he's asked multiple times, both in Luke's gospel, we have that response, and in Matthew's gospel, we have that response. And Oftentimes we see it even now in our contemporary world. Oh, it's the end of times. Things sure don't look good. The Lord is coming soon. And our Lord in his day as God is saying in Matthew's gospel, verses 24, 36, chapter 24, verse 36, I am God. I am the son of man. I don't know when I'm coming back. So you humans stop trying to predict it. And today in Luke, we have the same thing. Asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he said in reply, the coming of the kingdom of God cannot be observed, and no one will announce, look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is among you right now. The kingdom of God is among us right now. So as we even today in contemporary times hear prognostications about the end of times and the return of the Lord, we just encourage all of us to put that aside and say, as our Lord says, no one will be able to point to that. No human can say, oh, that's the end of times, our Lord is coming soon, regardless of the days in which we live, because we could look at other moments in history, history, the period of the Great Plague in the 14th century, how horrific that was, or certainly these devastating wars that have been fought through the annals of history and time. One could argue at that time, well, this must be it. Well, it's not it, it's not it. None of us can predict when that moment is. The key is that we focus on the kingdom now, that we are sons and daughters born into that kingdom through the adoption of baptism, and we have a principal responsibility, which is to share that faith, promote that faith, and become informed about and then live as authentically as we can the doctrinal teachings of the church. Our great saint that we recognize today attempted to do that. He was born uh, John Kunchevich, John Kunchevich was his name at baptism. And he is born and grew up in the region called the Carpathian Mountains. These are mountains that share a common border with, or nations today share common borders in that mountainous region. Poland and Hungary share a area, part of that area. The Czech Republic shares part of those Carpathian Mountains. And so it's kind of eastern, northeastern Europe. We can picture the region. And the history is this, is that uh, he was born in 1580, but by that time, since the 800s, Cyril, as we know, and Methodius had brought the faith into the Slavic people. And in this mountainous region, the Slavic people had subdivided into various faith practices. They were all Christian, they were all Catholic. But in these Carpathian mountains, you had a cultural group identified as, I'll, I'll say it, it'll sound familiar, Rus Russian, but it was R-U-S-Y-N, the Russian people. Not Russian, but Russian, R-U-S-Y-N. They were Catholics, but they were uh, derivative of the Byzantine faith out of Constantinople to the, during the Byzantine Empire. So the Catholics in Northeastern Europe were primarily Byzantine 
And in Poland, they were aligned with Rome, not Constantinople. So there was division in the church. And John Kunchevich um, then was a businessman, actually, in Vilna. He was a businessman in Vilna, but he leaves his career in business and he enters into formation to uh, become a monk. And he does. He becomes what's called a Basilian monk in Vilna. There's a monastery there. And he takes the name Josephat. That's his professed name, Josephat. It was John, now it's Josephat. And he works very hard. He's actually a monk celebrated for his work in what we call ecumenism, trying to bring alignment within the faith because they were all uh, Catholics and they were all authentic in the doctrines, but they became, as happens today in our contemporary culture, right here in the United States, among various parish communities, they became very focused on the externalities and on the non-doctrinal truths. They were preferences or a belief about something, well, this is the right way it has to be. Or, or in this case with the Russian, the Russian Catholics, R-U-S-Y-N, that the mass had to be celebrated in the Slavic language and not Greek and not Latin. They were very particular about how the mass was to be uh, executed. But those weren't doctrinal divisions. If you looked at the uh, Nicene-Constantinople Creed, the creedal statements we say each Sunday and each feast day, they're 100% in alignment with those. There was no difference between Rome and Constantinople or between the, uh, the faith communities in the Carpathian Mountains. They all believed the same creed. That wasn't their issue. They became very distracted by these pecune externalities that were more cultural than they were anything else. And our Lord is telling us, don't, don't do that. Be in the kingdom. Don't be distracted by these pecune cultural preferences that are not doctrinal. There's no doctrine behind what you're saying or, or these preference that you profess. We are the kingdom and we are to be united in our faith as Paul is encouraging Philemon, be united, recognize Onesimus and his walk in faith as a brother in Christ. Don't be distracted by this civil or uh, cultural norm of slavery. Recognize him as a brother in Christ. Give him that freedom in the brother in Christ. And so that's our message perhaps today, inspired not only by Paul, the great writer, inspired by our Lord's teaching that we are the kingdom and are to, to live in unity as brothers and sisters within that kingdom, and certainly inspired by John Kunchevich, St. Josephat, who would die in 1623, martyred for, in his attempt to bring unity between the various cultural and religious groups, all Catholic, but killed in the city of Vilna, because he continued to work very hard to focus on the doctrinal truths and was not subordinated to these cultural preferences that had become very distracting. When he died, his last words were these, so beautifully said, you hate me to the point of killing me, but I hold you in my heart and am willing to die for you. You hate me to the point of killing me, but I hold you in my heart and am willing to die for you. So words so well spoken by our Savior, whose death gives us life and repeated 15 centuries later by this great saint in the church. Saint Josephat, pray for us.